0: But at the same time right so you're like engaged trying to be like hey, okay, what's the happening what are the forces who's doing what is um is titus crazy is he not crazy is he kind of crazy uh toward the end and then also
1: i'm like who's gonna eat who made our way to the coast with the cannibals
0: Where you can fill your Canadian content quota by listening to Cannibal Conversations. I am Jocelyn.
1: I am Zachary.
0: And this week we are talking about the 1993. Uh, no, no, I'm getting. It's uh,
1: 1999, I believe.
0: The 1999 uh, filmic production of Titus Andronicus called Titus by uh, American director Julie Taymor.
1: Yes. Is Indeed you are correct, Jocelyn. Uh, we are watching or we are talking about the Julie Taymor adaptation of Titus Andronicus, the William Shake early William Shakespeare play. And uh, for anyone who has seen this film or knows anything about it, it is both very much in the vein of the kind of Romeo and Juliet of the 19 mid-1990s kind of stream of Reimaginings and modernizations of Shakespeare while also being very true to the source material. It's a, a really postmodern adaptation and it definitely indulges a lot in the climactic scene, which involves cannibalism, which is how we ended up talking about it today.
0: Yeah, one of the things that is, I've of two notes before we start. One is that one of the things that's exciting for me is that this is kind of the one film on the roster that I have not seen before. So Zachary is going to be taking the lead in our conversation, and I'm really pumped about that. The other note before we get started is that our pets are just super determined to be noisy tonight. Our cat just uh, dragged his carrier across a, uh, um, the space it's in. Uh, our dog is like snorkeling away at a treat puzzle on the floor. So if you hear kind of funny sounds in the background, we'll try to keep things to a minimum. If there's something really disruptive, obviously we'll um, pause and re-record sections. But there just some uh some animal sounds in kind of the midst in the background.
1: And this is totally not uh, the worst week to have grumblings and rumblings and animal sounds in the background. Because this, folks, is a really violent film. It largely, in a very broad kind of thematic sense, looks at people's inhumanity to one another. Um, It looks at the different mechanisms that create sustained systems of violence, whether they be racism, patriarchy, uh, war, nationalism government corruption, it's all in this play. And so I guess it makes sense that Shakespeare, uh, you know, put all this murder, mayhem, bloodshed, all the worst stuff, and then he saves the most taboo thing for the very end, which is a cannibalistic, uh, cannibal scene. Uh, and I guess we can go through the plot in just like a very, there's so many different back and forths and betrayals and political intrigue but the long story short is it's a revenge story
0: yeah i guess usually i make you do the plot summary so i can
1: i will throw the hot potato over to jocelyn to do the plot summary
0: amazing so i am not familiar with the play we watched the film kind of in two Sittings, the first sitting, uh I had donated blood that day and we watched kind of the first half and I was like, awesome. I I'm trying to follow this and, and I'm kind of woozy. I literally do not have enough blood uh to finish the film. So I will do my best. So yeah. in really, really broad strokes we have Titus who is the head of the Roman army. Our opening, our kind of setup scene. Although we get the introduction to the little boy, but I think I'll let you talk about that, Zach. Our setup scene is that the Roman army has just come back from war. They have captured, um, uh, they have captured sort of important political figures from the Goths. Um, there is this kind of very gut wrenching scene early, early in. The text where the price of admission to Roman citizenship for um, three of those members of goth society. So it's Jessica Lang and her two sons. So it's Tamara, Demetrius, and Chiron. Chiron, yes. And the-
1: Tamara is the queen of the goths.
0: Yes. Um, So Tamara, the queen of the Goths, gets to keep her two younger sons at the cost of the life of her eldest son, who is kind of brutally murdered um, by Titus. And this sets off essentially this really, like, rather complex kind of tit for tat of revenge. And so what happens is Tamara is gleeful to see eventually sort of the destruction of Titus's sons and Titus's daughter. This happens after there is um, sort of an election of a new emperor. Titus turns it down. Um, The other young uh, young man who's kind of in line to be emperor, who is betrothed to Lavinia, which is Titus's daughter, also turns it down. And the, the uh, man who ends up accepting it is this devious character who's also not very bright, which is Saturnalia.
1: Saturnine.
0: Saturnine, excuse me. And Saturnine and Tamara through a complex scene end up kind of taking each other as lovers eventually they are married they go on to be the rulers of Rome and we get this this interesting we get different alliances um and also different ways that there's kind of political splitting so we get Titus as the kind of leader of the Roman army hypothetically uh both going mad and leading um sort of a pseudo-attempted coup toward the end of the film. We got this other piece that's happening where the actual Roman army and the Goth army seem to be collaborating and cooperating and no longer under the rule of Titus. Um, And then we also have just conflict between Titus and Titus's family, this kind of very personal conflict between Titus and Titus's family and Tamara and Tamara's family. Um, which is all complicated, complicated by um, Tamara's lover and this kind of wild card character who is also um, kind of like three steps ahead, ha- three steps ahead of everyone at all times, and maybe the only character who can truly see the big picture, which is uh, a character who I think is—is is his formal name Aaron the Moor?
1: Certainly in the play, like, his dialogue is attributed to Aaron the um I, as far as, like, we, I think we are comfortable just referring to him as Aaron.
0: I think, so. yeah. As more
1: is, is usually a derogatory term within the play when he's being addressed.
0: Yeah, I think it's important. I don't know how much we will, Zach, you're going to lead the conversation, but it's important to note, I think, that he is... A complex character in some ways he has a lot of power in other ways he is treated really badly because of racism. Um, this version of again, I'm not familiar with how the play is usually staged or interpreted or understood. This version seems to at once be showing the racism that is in the text and also commenting on it. Um, is my, is kind of what I take away from it, but it's still very much there. It's still very much, um, the racism is, racism is present in the text and racism, racism is one of the forces affecting that character.
1: Yeah. It's a tricky one. Um, it's such a rich character and Harry Lennox is just absolutely phenomenal in the role as Aaron. Um, and yeah, not, I don't want to divert the conversation too much from, cannibalism in particular, which we're going to be talking about, but, uh, essentially like, yeah, I think Julie Taymor has a really good approach to the racism in Titus Andronicus, just in that, um, the, the, the text itself isn't altered like most Shakespearean adaptations, like this isn't, we're not modernizing the dialogue and just keeping the story, um, but, the camera and the performances of the other characters around Aaron uh the camera is very much aware of of Aaron's plight and the way he's constantly dehumanized by other characters uh and some of the complicating factors that make it such a rich character I I would I think to play into stage but difficult to kind of come to terms with uh in terms of Shakespeare's intentions is that Aaron is extremely uh, indulgent and, and he embraces his villainy. He brags about it, uh, discussing there's different scenes where he repents any good deed he's ever done and very much wishes that he could have committed more offenses and felonies. Um, so the way it's, it's staged in Tamar's version Because we see how ahead of the other characters and how strategic Aaron is, we kind of see uh, a lot of his nefariousness being perhaps him exacting some kind of revenge and lashing out for the way he's been, you know, brutalized by uh, first goth society where he has a close relationship with Tamara, but it's clear that it's very much private because of his race. And then once he gets to Rome and Tamara's married to Saturnine the new emperor he's he's very much an afterthought in the new Roman courtyard, and that's where he begins to really start his uh his plotting of various characters' downfalls
0: yeah and and once they're in Rome, he becomes. I I think that the scenes where we got the kind of stirring up of the political conflict, which, like, the seeds of that stirring are already there. The seeds of of the various violent um, plots and ploys that each of the kind of sides either make against each other or are kind of um, made on behalf of one another by Aaron in order to kind of... Um, produce further violence and further chaos, like the seeds are all in the murder of of uh, Tamra's first firstborn son. But yeah, there's a sense that that he kind of takes advantage of the way that in Roman society he is a little bit invisible. Um, and the camera does some really interesting things to show us that invisibility. There's that early scene where Tamra and Saturnine have just been. I, I I don't think they're like, we don't see a wedding. I think it's it's much more, um,
1: it's like an ellipsis in that and her pregnancy as well, where we don't, it's not really commented on, and then suddenly her child is born.
0: Yeah, yes, yeah. Her pregnant, the, the, uh, her pregnancy is also invisible until there is a baby, and the baby is also a black person like, like Aaron. Um, But in this scene, that's kind of a celebration of really like the political union. It's not a union of love political union after the fallout from this war we the camera like kind of does this like weaving around this like kind of big stone room and it's very circular and there's this big celebration happening and it's kind of chaotic and we focus in on a couple of of key characters who we see and then when we see Aaron it's like we see him come from like afar and then we like slowly kind of zig through the room back to him in a way that um I, I found was very much like showing us the camera is showing us that it hasn't shown us him yet, I guess.
1: Yeah. And I know it's, it's a very much a, a frequently used strategy in in film adaptations of, of Shakespeare to choose to have these kind of reveal shots where a character is seen in the background and maybe watching some of the dialogue. Um, and because of, what survives of original Shakespeare text. Sometimes it's unclear if that character, yeah, like did Shakespeare intend for them to be witness to this scene or not? This is used to really great effect with Aaron where he's, i I feel like there's almost like a half dozen or more scenes where he's either, you know, in somewhere in the background of the scene watching and then he comes in after rather than having him like come through a door and clearly be like entering the scene anew. Um, and it, it's just, it's done to a really good effect where we are reminded that he's watching a lot of things, he's planning a lot of things, and uh, unfortunately for Aaron, like a lot of the characters in the play, uh, even as as much of his own drama he orchestrates, a lot of it uh, still is out of his hands in the end, and, uh, you know, his downfall is brought on by is ambition, in a lot of ways, which is a familiar Shakespeare theme, I think, and appears throughout Titus with different characters.
0: Yeah, I think it's um, I think having having your downfall, like having hubris, essentially be like a character trait, almost. Like, I wonder if there's a way that he um, to read him as a kind of hero, right? Like in a in a tragedy, that's that's the way that you frame the hero of, of a, a traditional tragic text, right? Um, he, I'm not sure if we're, if you want to move on. I want to, one of the things that really strikes me is that, um, this is very much a text about people murdering each other's children or mutilating each other's children. Um, and he is the only, and, and again, like, we don't want to, there's, there's problematic stuff in the text, right? We are, uh, we don't want to, just like with, with Sons of the Lambs, we don't want to push that under, um, um uh, pretend it's it's not happening, but we going to talk about what Timor does with it um it's really clear he's the only parent who treats his offspring in an actually sacrosanct way, like Titus kind of tries to protect Lavinia um all of his sons go to war with him, right, and he er, early in the play he. Murders one of his own sons for. Um, there's this this whole piece about after the marriage and there's this whole upset where Lavinia is. Titus allows Saturnalia to claim Saturnine. Saturnine. I'm gonna probably do that all the way through. I'll really try not to. Uh, I don't know why Saturnalia is in my head. Um, really, uh, he allows Lavinia to be sort of claimed by Saturnine as his own. Um, which doesn't end up, isn't, isn't what happened. It's not like the union that happens. Um, but Lavinia sees it as a betrayal. Lavinia's brothers see it as a betrayal to the family and to the things the family stands for. Um, but Titus still sees himself as serving the state of Rome. And he actually, when his, uh, when his sons try to take Lavinia and the other, the other brother who she is sort of. Yeah. It be-
1: starts with beep.
0: I don't remember
1: or something like that. Yeah.
0: Who she who she loves and his bishop too. And they try to kind of whisk them away to protect them. Um, Titus, like one allows Lavinia to be claimed in this way, even though he later goes on to protect her, but he also just like straight up stabs and murders his own son for betraying the state. A
1: drop of a hat. It's really abrupt. Um, And Elmila. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and Aaron is really the only, like his whole thing is, is like this, this baby is me and I will protect and I will do like literally everything I can to ensure the safety of this child. So that that really um I don't know if that's something that is as present in every staging or in the original text, but I think Tamar really, really makes that clear as a, a kind of counter to to some of the the harder, more villainous kind of parts of that character complicates the character
1: yeah absolutely and it's i think um yeah i mean as far as what's like in the text itself it's there there is a real inconsistency like in his character that like a really good adaptation and a really great performance like this can kind of try to fill in those gaps a little bit um when tamra's child is revealed to be aaron's and her two white children are aghast at, at this, this black child, uh, I think Aaron's response, if I'm paraphrasing, is something like, is black so base a hue? And he comes, you know, he's speaking overtly in defense of, of himself and his child and their, their right to exist. And then it's almost like a scene later, he's reveling in how much carnage and murder and mischief he's engaged in throughout his life. So I think it's similar to uh, modern stagings of Merchant of Venice where we kind of try to look at like Shylock such an interesting complex character and yet the text is still unapologetically anti-Semitic. So it's like we have to find ways and by we I mean like us as a society trying to grow and progress. How do we stage these in a way where we maintain the complexity of the characters and what they offer to a a really good performance, but also not shying away from the fact that, uh, you know, there's some pretty overtly racist, hateful stuff in in both of those plays.
0: Yeah, I think part of the, the challenge of staging any text like this is how do you... I mean, like, you can make a choice to sanitize the play of those things and kind of rewrite history and pretend that, that, that those layers aren't there, that, that they just didn't exist in the original text. Um, I don't think that that's a good choice. Um, you can choose to present it quite literally to the way that it's written, which leaves open, Um, the possibility right like this dangerous possibility that your text seems to be condoning the racist narrative or the anti-semitic narrative Um, and the challenge if you're going to try to really meet the challenge of the text in a responsible way is to not imagine that that again the text isn't written with racism in it but to like how do you show your audience that without inviting your audience to participate in the racism so how do you comment on it without reinforcing it um and i i think tamor does a, a, i mean i, I think tamor does a pretty good job at that
1: yeah i i think so. i think the misogyny in the play similarly um there's so many great shots of just Lavinia, who's mute through most of the play, just giving these really gut wrenching, very physical reactions, and and her physical acting, um, which I mean, certainly on the page, that's all invisible, and Lavinia feels very much like a uh, kind of a prop, just to symbolize kind of a weakness and suffering that uh, Tamara and her sons can exploit within Titus, um, and the performance in the film and the direction of Tamar really gives it, it really embodies all of that suffering that Lavinia goes through that we don't see on the page, and I will play devil's advocate and suspect in early stagings was probably not very present either.
0: Yeah, I would I would say that if Tamar does a pretty okay job at um, being sensitive about depicting race in this text. I think she does an excellent job of depicting, um, depicting like patriarchal forces. Like I think it's, it's um, probably a simpler task in 1999 to be depicting those things. But I think it's also, yeah, it's just, it's, she, she does a really strong job of depicting um forces of patriarchy and patriarchal violence yeah in a really complex way and
1: yeah the what do i want to say about that certainly the character of tamara um in the text and if you read the play and kind of left to your own imagination and devices is a is pretty much at the mercy of the description of a lot of the powerful male characters in the play um even just, it's fresh in my mind because it's the very last speech in the play. While Saturnine is given a royal funeral after his eventual assassination, uh, Tamara is talked about as being a beast and only fit for beasts, which also speaks to the racism of how her interracial child with Aaron is perceived and her body is fed to birds and wolves or something along that nature. Uh, but when you see Tamara performed by, by Jessica Lang and the way Tamor really embraces the kind of like the visceral power of her as a queen and a warlord. And also like at this, like her dedication to her sons and her as like a mother, uh, it's just, it opens up the character to a, a much more, not even necessarily sympathetic reading, but just like a much more three-dimensional one.
0: Yeah, I think we, we get a sense, how do I say this, like, she is a, she's a villain in the play, certainly, but her villainy is so tied to that opening scene, right, to like the action by Titus, the murder of her son, and the way she pleads, she pleads, um, If I, and I don't, I don't know, this is not word for word, but she essentially says to Titus, like, if you know what it's like to be a parent and to lose your children, to like understand that feeling and like spare me that feeling. And he's just cold and and heartless um, in, in that moment. And then she goes on to be this really, like, it's such a good depiction because she is a villain. It's unquestionable that she's a villain. Um, but she goes on to still be this, like, disempowered relatively, like, in the sense of having any true political power in the system, um, to being this, like, relatively disempowered person. She gets chosen as a bride by Saturnine, and, like, that's just it. Like, that's her, like, her state, right? Yeah,
1: we don't see her making royal decrees or, you know, uh, bringing her goth allies and colleagues like out of the countryside and into Rome
0: she can't even she doesn't even get to say yes or no to being
1: queen to yeah being queen
0: or to being married or to being brought in like to being brought to Rome to become a Roman citizen at this like really high cost like as um um a prisoner of war or whatever like she has no say in any of those things, and then she goes on to use what little power she can find and to be really cunning and really smart about how she's going to um, sort of persuade other people to cause violence sort of on her behalf. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that kind of in the centerpiece when all of the mess gets stirred up, it's kind of unclear how much, like, who's the brain behind some of that stirring up, right? So there's this scene in also a green space. Um, the thing that is made possible in the green space is that Aaron and Tamara, these two super disempowered characters in the society, get to, one, have a love affair with each other. Um, and it seems like it, there's maybe, there's two couples that get to like love each other and it's Lavinia and her murdered betrothed yeah, Saturnine's brother. brother, whose name neither of us can remember, and then it's which can happen publicly but is not allowed to um is not allowed to amount to anything they don't get to have a child or a future together, and then there's Tamara and Aaron who get to have this like hidden secret thing. Um, but it seems to be like this real, like it's depicted as being, I don't, I I would say love. Like they're. Yeah, yeah. I mean
1: the scene even just the scene of them in the woods, it's so passionate and so erotic. And it's like some of the only, I think it's like the only eroticism we see in the film that isn't kind of just like gratuitous party scenes. Um, but they're kind of grappling with one another on the ground in the woods and in the, Play at stage where they're essentially just talking. So again, it's a really good way of showing us the kind of this like really dynamic sexual and emotional energy that's between them. Um, And with the performances, it's very kinetic. And there's not a lot of humanity present in a lot of the characters in this play, kind of by design. It's again, it's about in a lot of ways, it's it's a story in a play about cruelty and barbarism and trying to cling on to some ideals like in a in a world where that's kind of gone out the window but when we see them in their private space together it really makes them feel sympathetic and relatable in a way that the other characters uh who are so over the top and I mean, Aaron and, and Tim are over the top in their own way as well. But it brings them down to earth, literally, but like also figuratively in a way that we rarely get a glimpse of in the in the film or the play.
0: And and that scene too. So it it links them together. It becomes kind of a little bit hard to tell who's the ultimate kind of villain. I'm kind of using scare quotes, but like who's the Puppet ultimate master? Yeah. In, yeah. Um, but it also really drives home those two characters as people who whose villainy comes from being hurt so we get tamra's backstory like we know why um why she goes through this kind of transformation of being like cause, because she she steps into once her and saturnine are married this you, you can almost see it in the performance there's this moment early on or, or Married is whatever, once they become a a union. Yeah, this
1: unholy political union.
0: Yeah, where like something kind of clicks for her and she steps into the power that she can access through Saturnine and and others. And that's like a big transformation of character that we get to see. And with Aaron, we don't get to see kind of the transformation in the same way, but they're in, in that scene in the woods where they are just having that really passionate moment. They get kind of linked as characters who are disempowered and also harmed, um, on the run,
1: as it were. The, yeah, in the woods. Yeah,
0: yeah. And as there, it's I think left open to interpretation that that both of them mm. kind of come to their villainy through um, almost like a a, a a survival or um. Um, they're transformed, I guess, into their kind of villainous nature by harms done to them is the way that i I understood that?
1: yeah, I as to not to go off on the kind of a Shakespeare buff tangent, but a lot of Shakespeare's truly great, like capital V villains, uh, Richard the Third, which I believe was written shortly before Titus. And then a few years later he has characters like Iago and uh, from Othello and Edmund and King Lear. And it's often written, it's almost a cliche, that they're, they really are the authors of the tragedy and the authors of their own drama. And especially with characters like Richard III and Iago, they're constantly, through their manipulations and their scheming, creating the drama of the play. They're They're pitting characters against each other, they're taking over nations, they're plotting murders, they're committing murders, they're lying, they're deceiving, seducing, a lot of seduction with these characters... And in Titus Andronicus, Aaron probably fits that mold a little bit better, but because Aaron and Tamara both... I mean, the play opens with them in chains, essentially, being led as prisoners of war. So because they're coming from this position of imprisonment, and then slowly, to differing degrees, regaining some kind of autonomy or at least ability to navigate the Roman court a little bit through deception it it lends a lot of sympathy to what would be considered like their villainy and again it's hard to say if that was if that was uh, I mean not to talk about authors intentions um, but it's hard to say whether that was the intended reading at the time or if like audiences at the time would have necessarily been looking for those kind of stories but it's, I mean, I'm grateful that those interpretations are so easily um, graspable now, because especially when you watch a film like this, it gives, like those two characters are such a gift to the film, um, that having that more tragic element to them, even as antagonists, especially when you have a hero who's as who behaves as questionably as Titus, like bigger scarecrows quotes around hero for Titus Andronicus than around Bill and for Tamara and uh, Aaron. I'll spitball that back to you. If you have anything to say or if we should move on to cannibalism, but yeah, I
0: I was just thinking about um, like thinking about an early modern audience and I mean, we can't, one of the, I mean, I'm not a Shakespeare expert. One of the things that is kind of interesting about texts like this is that we, we can never one hundred percent know how an, an an original like a a first audience, not just like the first people who see the play, but the kind of generation of people who encounter it first, um, would have would have taken it and interpreted it. What um, what way? Like what? Yeah. What kind of forces would have been? Not not to say that there's no way to understand any of the social factors at play. Like of course
1: you could do some cultural anthropology okay. look at you can glean from like the performances from like the late 1800s on until we get and then with film it becomes it's it's too easy it's like give me the last five film adaptations of henry v let's see though this change that change but the rest of it you're you're really trying to uh extricate it
0: yeah and like i wonder if I'm just I'm imagining, right? So, like, I came to to this to this film knowing it's on our list of six films to discuss as cannibal film, and so of course there's some part of my brain that's like, okay, Jocelyn, this is like a kind of text that's hard for us, and it's in the, like, the dialogue isn't edited, so it's in early modern English, which takes is is very poetic and flowery, but also kind of unfamiliar, so it's a little, right, following the text is a little bit tricky, although this the staging in a film makes it quite a bit easier for sure to follow, um, just the basics of, like, what's happening, but at the same time, right, so you're, like, engaged, trying to be like, okay, what's the happening, what are the forces, who's doing what, is... Um, is Titus crazy? Is he not crazy? Is he kind of crazy? Uh, toward the end. And then also, I'm like, who's gonna eat who? Yeah. Ins and outs of how, like, are people just kind of laughing at misogyny in this film rather than seeing commentary on patriarchy or people... Just bringing a purely racist attitude to uh, dip, uh, uh, the character of Aaron, like we can't fully know the complexities of those of those things. I'm a cultural studies uh, mm-hmm. major, also, so I'm like I know that there are people who who have a better sense of some of those things than I do, uh, for sure. So it's not impossible to kind of know cultural attitudes broadly to some degree, but but I wonder, right? The question of just like who eats who. Who's getting cooked into the pie?
1: Chekhov's mutton chop, yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, I, um... just I've spent a lot of time with this play over the years and and with contemporary plays that it's compared to a lot. I know it gets discussed a lot that this is very much in a tradition of Elizabethan drama of the, uh... starting with Thomas Kidd's The Spanish Tragedy but of the, like, revenge tragedy... And often these playwrights were kind of trying to top one another and create a stir by crafting as much brutality and violence and mayhem and mirth.
0: So just like slasher films. Today. It's a,
1: yeah. It's a very modern it's, it's, you know, it's WWE It's South park, like, you know, these, it's very analogous to all that, uh, which is why a lot of monocles pop in Shakespeare departments <laughs> when they want to talk about Titus Andronicus. Um, because it's so violent and it's it's pretty wacky. I think I don't really get that interpretation so much, just because like it is on the far end of obscene and over the top as far as Shakespeare plays go. But I mean, it's I don't think of it as like in a different universe than something like Richard the Third, like some of the earlier plays that are also really violent. Uh, but that being said, uh, there's the cannibal stuff at the end does feel like. Maybe Shakespeare trying to push the uh, yeah, like the shock factor and the exploitation factor uh, up a, up a couple notches.
0: So my experience with Shakespeare is very limited. Um, I have not studied. That's not true. I took a seventeenth century drama class, and I'm sure we had to study. Well, we studied a lot of Shakespeare's contemporaries. I don't remember if we studied Shakespeare player or not. I've read several plays. I've seen some contemporary stagings. I saw a really great staging of Macbeth. Um or um
1: That's a wacky one. It's yeah, pretty violent, pretty over the top.
0: It's pretty over the top. It was a um kind of a rewriting of Macbeth from like really focusing on the witches. Um performed, like, on silks at the Hamilton Fringe a few years ago. Yes,
1: I was literally... Nobody outside of Hamilton will know what this means, but I was at the Mulberry Cafe drinking coffee with every intention to go see it. It got to be about 15 minutes before showtime, and I was like, man, I'm going to stay here and read my book. And you missed. I missed, and I heard it I heard afterwards that I could not have made a worse mistake that night, and that it was actually incredible.
0: Yeah, kudos to the... Um... The Three Performers, it was one of the best best pieces of live theater that I have ever seen. That's an aside, but, um, but my experience with Shakespeare and stuff is, like, again, limited. I don't really know Shakespeare's political plays aside... I think Macbeth is considered one of the political...
1: Considered one of, like, the high tragedies.
0: Okay, so that's, like, the most that I have experienced um, with these texts. And so I don't really know how... Um, how much the family piece is common to to those texts? So I know, like in King Lear, um, I think we read King Lear in my. It,
1: this is it. Definitely feels like what, especially watching it as a thirty-seven-year-old man now, and I can look back and uh, I, it, it, I see so much of things that are kind of half-baked, pun intended, in Titus that are really, really profound and sublime and beautiful in King Lear. Um, And it it feels like like a really interesting sort of uh, extreme, much more violent, but kind of more in Chrysalis version of King Lear is what you get in Titus.
0: Yeah, that you you've mentioned that a little bit, and the one piece that I was able to recognize is is the kind of Mad King figure. Yeah, that...
1: and the, his mind, the the state of Rome and the state of Titus's mind is very much uh, a theme later explored in Shakespeare with uh, Lear and the the England in the kingdom in ruins, um, mirroring the state of his mind, and, and in, in Macbeth as. Uh, as Macbeth's sanity kind of unwinds, you see he's also, his his rulership over the nation is similarly unraveling. So there, again, as much as the play, Titus gets kind of passed over a lot for being a little too, I don't know, camp or, or too too over the top. It sets the stage, again, pun intended, for uh a lot of themes that Shakespeare would explore to really good use in the years and decades to come.
0: And we should come back to I, want to, I want to talk about some of the family stuff, but we should come back to the way that Timor uses, I mean, just like stages it, sets it, shoots it. I don't know. Like it's, it's like very postmodern. It's in and out of different periods of time. Like time is kind of, um, we're not, it's not set in a period of time, I guess is part of what is really interesting. Um, and we should talk about, about that as one of the ways that some of those themes get unders, underscored, for sure. Um, yeah, it really struck me the way that the conflict is, um, it's like, it's about Rome and the state of Rome, like you say, but like, the, there's no, like, the, the conflict is over at the beginning. We don't even really, like, if you're like me coming into this with totally fresh eyes, I'm like what the heck in war even happened yeah. right like I know I guess it's between Rome and, and the Goths but there's no real clear indication of of what like that conflict was about except in the ways that it gets transposed into this really um, weirdly almost intimate drama and so first we see parents harming the children of of, of the other and then we see, Tamara and Erin kind of both collectively put in the idea of her two her two sons Demetrius and
1: Chiron.
0: Chiron um played by Jonathan Rismeyer and his brother Matthew, I think. Which was the whole time I'm watching it, the only thing I've like the or the it's the same period as Velvet Goldmine. So I'm just like, is that Char Rissmeyer? Um who's that other guy? It's his brother. Anyway. Um, they they put into these two young men who are absolute fools all the way through. They're just, like, they're pure jouissance in the, like, freedom and joy, but joy that is violent and just, like, all drive. They have no sense, like, at all. They're super, um, it's like... At the mere suggestion of doing this really awful, grotesque thing, they just like run off and like laugh at it and think it's a great idea. Like they're, um, they're fools. That's like that's all I'm gonna say. And like so, it's it then becomes about like sending your children to do harm to um to the other person's children, and it's just. I don't know, It watching it, it feels on the one hand a little bit convoluted, kind of following the steps of who is moving what chess piece to harm who. Um And it also makes the conflict into the conflict of the next generation in this really concrete way. Um But then it also, yeah, it just makes it feel like it's this violence that's like not about states at all. It feels like it's a violence that's like in the home. It's like you're your stepmom doesn't like you, so she—they're not step siblings, but it feels right. They're kind of yeah, all living yeah. in this, this big household, and it kind of feels like your stepmom sent your stepbrothers to like rape and mutilate you. Like it's—it's it's, I don't know. There's an intimacy to the violence that's very um, tragic and compelling at the same time.
1: Yeah, a, a big part of the aesthetics of the film, which I we did a little bit of research on as well, is that. Uh, a lot of it was filmed in location in parts of Italy that were occupied by Mussolini and the fascists during World War II and during the Salo Republic. Um, which is to say, I there's one of the really unique things that happens during the first two world wars is that they become these, as historians call them, total wars where suddenly... Civilians are either manufacturing weapons from the home front or they're potentially victims of bombings and invasions and you lose this kind of more medieval sense of, like, proper war where, like, you go to a battlefield where there's no civilians around and, you know, the two sides oppose one another. Um, So I think Tamor giving it this very kind of, like, modern World War II aesthetic as far as the way the military's garbed and the way some of the buildings are are fashioned, it speaks to this idea that, like, the wars come home. Um, And quite literally, at the beginning of the play, like, in in Shakespeare's original version as well, like, it begins with Titus essentially making this victory lap with his goth prisoners on display. Um,
0: It doesn't. So, and I wouldn't have put this together no, if you no, no. hadn't have said the war comes home. It begins with the shot of a little boy who gets, it begins with a shot of a young boy. The film. Yes, yes, the yeah, film. Yeah, yeah. Sitting at a table with toy soldiers and like condiments and food and just making an absolute mess. So like a picture of a battlefield that's just totally incoherent and he's just there making chaos and being kind of rageful.
1: Aggressively, but rapidly yeah. yeah he starts to go berserk yeah. and then
0: there's a, a a bomb goes off it seems to be in kind of the space that is like the literal like if is in a city a bomb goes off in that city and is it the the character who
1: he later becomes, becomes lucius yeah which is uh titus's grandson um, and the son of titus's by the end of the play his only living son which is lucius who assumes emperorship of rome
0: is it, is it the son, Lucius, who oh, yes. comes into the kitchen and takes the boy, we think it's down the stairs into, he like... He
1: might be that soldier, yeah. I never even thought of that. But yeah.
0: a, a soldier, for sure, takes the boy down some stairs, and we think it's, like, to safety, to a bomb shelter, to something, and it it's just into, like, this kind of coliseum space. It's
1: such a cool shot. It's
0: such a cool, tra- yeah, transition. The pan,
1: and you realize you're in the coliseum and not in a bunker.
0: And you move from the war in the space of the domestic home to the war between Rome and the Goths and Titus and the Roman army coming home, which we then get transferred back into, like, the war come home in the way that you're you're describing is, like, into the home again. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And also, just, again, before we get to cannibalism, but just the sense of, I, I use the expression, chickens coming home to roost. There's a lot of kind of like the sins of the father type themes throughout the play where like, I think in a lot of ways, Titus having so much taken away from him as soon as he gets back from war after committing all this brutality were invited to kind of think of it as like in the same way Rome eventually had to fall. Um, it's kind of like all of this power comes at a cost and for titus it's like what you know he he turns down the emperor like this the title of emperor so he's essentially like he's done his life's work he's been this great military leader he's content but then once his children start getting hurt and killed is when he starts to break down but it's His first child to get fatally wounded is the one that, other than the ones who die at war before the play, the action of the play begins, is the son that Titus himself murders, really impulsively. So it's still kind of in keeping with this idea of, we have all these characters who are really volatile, and a lot of that is the result of being in this world that's very volatile, but ultimately their actions still come with really, really dire consequences.
0: Yeah, and and the the unraveling of Titus and of the plot and, and and the events that eventually lead to the cannibalism are really tied to the two women characters too, and um, the aftermath. So they're really tied to Tamra telling her sons to muti- mutilate and harm Lavinia, um, and and to. Titus starts to unravel when he learns what's happened to Lavinia and my sense of of that when I was watching it is it's like this is his child who is not is not born into a gendered role that goes to war, Mm -hmm. is born into a gendered role that Marries someone and maybe gives him grandchildren and kind of represents the future of the family in kind of all of the ways that like women's bodies, um, not and not to say, not to say that that's unproblematic or or anything like that, right? But Certainly
1: problematic, but yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. But like that, she's not supposed to be touched by the conflict in this way. Certainly, after um, from his perspective, everything has been resolved.
1: Uh, he and his daughter, like that's going to be probably the primary relationship in his life.
0: And and they have when uh, when he comes home, they have that really sweet, intimate moment where she says, "You know, I shed a tear for my brother's lost at war, but I'm like, but you're home."
1: Yeah, and and Titus can be again, it's it's a very kind of macho cliche, but it's a, affecting at times because of the performances. It's he can be gentle and tender around Lavinia in a way that he's not often with other characters.
0: Yeah. And then the unraveling gets completed. I think when there's the call chaos ensues, many things happen. Um, He ends up with, instead of the head of this army, there's Titus and Lavinia who has had her hands cut off and her tongue cut out. There's the grandson who. It's kind of a silent witness through the film and sort of kind of wakes up as a... Not wakes up, but, like, suddenly speaks and and we realize he's sort of really in the play and not...
1: He gets... And he starts getting jobs. Like, suddenly Titus will be like, Lucius, my boy, grab that, or...
0: Yeah, yeah. So he suddenly is is a character.
1: Becoming a man, maybe, as it were, although that might be interpreting it too much, but...
0: I mean he's there for a long time and we're not sure what he's doing and yeah. then suddenly we're like okay we get he's it it's part so of the
1: action yeah becomes
0: become something for sure
1: yeah.
0: um but there's this so it's it's the three of them and then his brother Marcus and like that there's kind of the, the unit is dwindled down to this and the, and his two two of his sons remaining so lucius is still alive and unharmed and there's two other sons and they are sort of taken into captivity for murder and framed by by aaron yes framed thank you framed by aaron um and there's this call that like if someone just cuts off a hand they will this will be like the payment to free the sons and people squabble about whose hand it should be, and there's a lot of people volunteering to give up their hand, but Titus uh, gives up his hand in exchange for the lives of his two sons, and what is returned to him is the heads of his two sons and his hand.
1: So ghastly. It's
0: so ghastly, and Tamar, the way it's... um, One of the moments where it's, like, this very out of time, it's like a freak show. Not a a freak show's wrong. It's got a carnival. It
1: almost looks like a food truck. Yeah. (laughs) With uh, a carnival barker and a young... I guess you would say she's like a dancer or a gymnast, kind I of? I think
0: they're like circus performers. Yeah. There's a guy who's like in... He's got swim goggles and a swim cap on his head and like a 1940s, just kind of... 40s-ish kind of swimsuit. And she's in a red dress with um, kind of strappy shoes and they're dancing and they've got this cart that's got a window or that's covered with a curtain, I guess.
1: Yeah, and Titus and... Marcus, his brother, and Lucius, his surviving son, and Lavinia, so the family, are all bemused, like, oh, it's some respite from this horrible world we live in. So they sit down to watch the show, only for it to be revealed... I'll pass this to Jocelyn. To
0: be revealed that it's this um, payment returned to him. Like, he didn't pay his his debts... Uh, I mean, he did pay his debts, but it's, it's, it's getting the the payment is getting sent back to him as well as as his son's heads. Um, And he, which feels to me, like, it's, to me, that feels like the closest thing to justice to the opening scene when he, when he kills Chandra's son, right? To me, I feel, I'm like that, those two scenes could play off of one another and be um, not, there's no way to like equalize something like that kind of harm. But in a, Theatrical kind of way they could play off of each other, kind of eat and create an evenness. Um, but too many things have transpired in between, and too many people have been harmed. Too much chaos has been set into motion, and Titus is just like there's no justice. Every the whole system has become upset, and I think that's where his descent into madness really takes off.
1: Yeah, because it's paradoxical, right? It's like to him, it's like. He's been able to survive and and actually prosper and excel because he knows the rules of engagement and he knows the rules of the world. And those rules have benefited him and he's been able to work within them. So to him, if the promise on the table is cut off your hand and I'll return your sons to you, he believes it. And when that promise isn't fulfilled, in fact, it's kind of quite the opposite, it breaks him, but it's really not any different like you say from Tamara begging for her son's life in the earlier scene and him refusing it seems like a similar disregard for any kind of rules of justice or or parity or or uh even you know some kind of rules of ethical warfare as much as that's a paradox in itself that that phrase
0: yeah and it it's there's this This kind of irony, right? Which is, like, the people of Rome presumably want him to be the emperor because of his dedication to, like, law and order, essentially. The
1: system, yeah. Yeah,
0: the system of keeping everything in place. And he refuses that. Which is, in a way, what sets off the chaos. Um, And then the way that the chaos is... It's contained, begins with the cannibalism, and ends with the death of everyone except uh, Aaron's son and the grandson, so the two little boys. In this version, I don't know what happens in the play, but in this version...
1: Yeah, that, I think, is Tamar's big contribution to the play, is ending on the shot of Lucius and Aaron's son, just because they're silent and they don't, you know, they don't have a, a soliloquy or, an, a, you know, a eulogy to close the play with on, on the page.
0: And they seem to walk out of, like, I think, is it the same part of the set? Like, I think they're walking out the same way the little boy walks in in the opening scene, I think. Yeah,
1: out of the Colosseum was how I...
0: Yeah. That
1: was how it looked to me. Yeah. Which
0: is presumably out of time, out of that time period, out of the mess of time that is the play in the world.
1: Cycles of violence. Yeah, yeah.
0: into we don't know what, but something else. Um, but what precedes that, the, the, the climactic scene that precedes the little bit of hope and peace at that ending, um, that is part of what, again, drives home for what I meant for me, what I mentioned at the beginning, which is Aaron being um one of the only parents who does everything in his power to protect his son and his son gets gets to live into the next something we don't know what but but i think that's that's an important part of the way that timor is trying to kind of comment on on systems of race and racism in the film or to, to disentangle them a little bit um but before we get to that very poignant moment we get to the cannibals and scene so Um, if you have been listening to us recording for, like, I'm looking at the time, like, at least half an hour, you're like, get to the cannibalism, maybe. So, Zach, what the heck?
1: Yeah, so. In a bare-bones, skeletal kind of synopsis, this play has to somehow climax, for better or worse, with Titus getting his ultimate revenge on Tamara for the death of his sons and the mutilation and rape of his daughter. And he does so by abducting her sons, bleeding them to death like chickens, which is depicted extremely gruesomely in the film version with Lavinia catching their blood in a a pan. And then uh, the description itself is pretty grisly, even without visuals. He talks about grinding their bones into a powder, and he's going to use the powder and blood to make a pastry, and sure enough, we see these two giant pies with blood-red filling that contain Chiron and Demetrius. And they serve them uh, in like high camp. uh, Titus Anthony Hopkins is wearing a big puffy white chef's hat, and he's screaming and laughing and dancing around and feeding people this pie made out of humans. People are eating it.
0: Yeah, at this like very formal banquet where like uh, Tamara and uh, Saturnine are seated at the the heads of the table and served first um, as like honored guests or, or whatever. And then he it's so interesting to me watching it because I'm just like. And now this is how it will end. We'll close up on Anthony Hopkins's face and he'll wink and it'll just be like ha ha. But that's not how it ends. That would
1: have been the yeah, the good looney tunes ending. They could have done that. Yeah, I guess it, I I kind of think of it as like this is the culmination of a world gone mad where you know, a mother's eating her own children unwittingly and they're baked into a pie and the and it's it's kind of like the chaos of the play, and all the ways in which it mirrors the chaos of Rome in the play, culminate in that scene because once, uh, so in probably the most baffling, the two most baffling actions in the play are Titus abruptly killing his son early on, and then seemingly there's some kind of weird murder pact between Titus and Lavinia, which is also really problematic in terms of Lavinia having any kind of autonomy as a character. But she comes to the dinner in a black kind of funereal veil, and essentially Titus uh, lets everybody at the table know. How does it play out? He lets them know that this is Lavinia, and he knows that Tamara's children cut off her hands and cut out her tongue and raped her. And then he snaps her neck and kills her in front of everybody and then reveals that they've been eating Chiron and uh, Demetrius. And then he kills Tamara by stabbing her in the neck. And a few seconds later, Saturnine kills Titus by impaling him with a candelabra. And then Lucius cements his leadership of Rome by shoving a hot poker down Saturnine's throat. And It's funny, because I guess if you're, if you have conservative values, I could see this ending feeling like, ah, order is restored. We have a strong leader, and the bad people and the unstable people have all been dealt with. But um, a more discerning eye, and certainly Tamor's eye, uh, sees it as we're back to the status quo, and this house of cards could come tumbling down again at any point.
0: Yeah, I think I think that Tamar drives home for us that it's like the opposite of order being restored. It's like the circus is just over. Like literally it's the same character with in the the swimming gear who takes what look like plastic, clear plastic tablecloths and like covers the bodies and covers oh, yeah. the scene. Um which this kind of trick of the camera—it's really interestingly done. We kind of transfer very seamlessly from this like indoor setting to the the table, kind of as if the scene were being staged in the Colosseum, uh, reminding us that it's a play and it's a play being viewed in the round in its original kind of setting. Uh, and then we get Marcus int- introducing
1: Lucius. Yeah, Marcus kind of laments his brothers and his family's death, introduces Lucius, and then kind of the first thing Lucius does is uh, delivers a really cruel condemnation of Aaron and Tamara. which again, on paper, I suspect reads more or less free of irony and is kind of just a celebration of these two heinous characters being vanquished. But uh, Tamor, just even through the, like, Lucius is kind of shot an extreme close-up, and he's kind of giving this big, chest-pounding, blustery speech from the podium. Uh, it's pretty clear that we are invited in the film to have a lot of sympathy for the fate that befalls Aaron and Tamara.
0: Yeah, I think it's it's very... <sighs> like the people who I have empathy for at the ending are, I have empathy for Lavinia. Lavinia has done nothing wrong in all of this. She has just been trying to live. Um, She didn't want to get given away to Saturnine. That's her only crime. She tries to avoid that. Crime in scare quotes. Um, And horrible things are done to her by everyone essentially takes part in harming her. Um, All of the the adults around her, not the, the none of the children, do. I have empathy for her, and I have empathy for the two children who get to live, uh, and maybe for the maid who gets stabbed by. Oh yeah,
1: I forgot about that. the one who delivers uh, Aaron and Tamara's child. Just
0: because it's to- it's just completely incidental that.
1: Um, just a, yeah, bystander, witness, and a bystander needs to be disposed of
0: yeah and the the ending scene is so complicated because I think at least the way Timur's framed it like I really want justice for Lavinia like I really when we see the Demetrius and Chiron murdered it's like at least you know justice for Lavinia not that I like not in any way do I think that like I'm against the death penalty, yeah.
1: IRL. But... It, yeah, it's extremely vicious the way it's filmed. Like it's not, it's not the cathartic like revenge murder of the average Hollywood film. But at the same time, there is something satisfying about Lavinia both revealing her killers and taking part in the revenge against them. Her killers, her her killer is her father, who she takes no revenge on. Um, on her assailants, her rapists
0: and the scene where she does it is so um beautiful and it's it's in a weird way she like runs after um Titus and his brother into kind of a field and she's got a book and she's like furiously flipping pages and flipping them with her mouth to um uh, is it Phil- Philomena?
1: Yeah, it's like the tragedy of Philomena who is raped and mutilated.
0: Yeah, and is able to sort of communicate in that way and she gets to take this big stick and write they they discover that even without hands and without her tongue, she can use this big stick to write their names in the sand and there's um and it's shot with some fun music and
1: even the there's a great shot in that scene where uh, her uncle Marcus is showing her he, she can use her mouth to help manipulate the stick.
0: Her teeth, yeah. Yeah,
1: and she's, like, about to put the stick in her mouth, and it's... I think it's pretty clearly supposed to be phallic.
0: And she's like, no. She's like, "Not
1: I've already been, you know, had these two men force themselves on me, like, I'm not gonna put my mouth around this stick. And then she just furiously, she shoulders it, like, in the crook of her neck, and writes their names out in, like, perfect Latin.
0: And the And the the film is sped up
1: yeah in
0: a way that just makes it feel really it's a, it's a powerful moment
1: hyperkinetic yeah and again great facial expressions from the actor whose name we should have come prepared with we
0: should have come prepared with we will um we will put that in the show notes maybe as the only actor name because it's the only really major one that we've forgotten because yeah. Uh, yeah she's. I don't know how to act. I mean, I don't know how to act could be a whole sentence, but I definitely don't know how to act with like no hands and with no lines and she does just like pow- a powerhouse performance.
1: Yeah. It, for And for such a wide variety of different things she's called upon to do, like there's even some lighthearted kind of like moments of levity after she's mutilated where she's still able to convey this sort of playfulness. Yeah. Um,
0: and
1: like, a really tender scene where sh- she's starting to use body language to communicate with Titus. And he's promising that he'll learn this whole new alphabet without words to communicate with her. I
0: guess this he'll essentially like he'll learn her every feeling
1: mm-hmm.
0: so that he can understand, like just by looking at her expressions that she means, it's really, it's really touching.
1: It is, especially amidst all the carnage and brutality and cruelty. And it's, um, it it's like a fleeting moment too. Like we very much get back to the brutality of the play and it reminds us again of the uh, similar to the scene with Aaron and uh, Tamara in the woods. It's kind of this glimpse into the humanity of these characters.
0: Yeah. Um, the ending, I want to come back to that. So it feels, yeah. it feels like justice when Titus is, cooking the suns up. But then it doesn't feel like justice cuz it's also like dude, you started this. Yeah. Like this is all your fault. So he's like the chef. Yeah, he's the he's the chef from the minute he walks. Yeah. Walks onto the into the right back into, into, into the film. Rome,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, well and the opening part of the opening sequence is all of Titus's soldiers his whole army appearing in the colosseum in this kind of really mechanized modern dance uh which kind of speaks to you know he has all these bodies under his control that mm. he's he's trained and he's orchestrated and then he's so much a victim of everybody else's power plays and manipulations through the rest of the play but again it's all kind of like you just said it's all this situation that he's created yeah By by creating a mess and trying to walk away from it, essentially.
0: Absolutely. Um, Tamar is. I wonder if this from you, Zachary. uh, Comes from the world of choreography. Um, If you are someone who enjoys watching dance performance, this film is probably going to also be interesting to you. There's the opening scene. I'm like, this is just modern modern dance. Um, But many of the big kind of crowd party scenes, very kind of peopled scenes. Um, are choreographed in a way that's kind of evocative of dance uh, more and less, but just really, um, it's a really, really interesting feature of this film, is that kind of Timur's hand on it in that way.
1: Yeah. Which, also if nothing else, is just such, it adds that nice flavor where it's rather than just being a modernization of Shakespeare, it's taking elements from the the setting, like the ancient Roman setting, also taking elements from the the world of Shakespeare's theater, and then the modern elements of, you know, uh, techno dance music and modern dance choreography.
0: Yeah. Do you have an idea of how to wrap up? I have one.
1: Uh, no, I don't. I was just gonna say before we wrap up, we like, or as we wrap up, we should wrap up by somehow talking more about cannibalism in the film
0: oh i was gonna say a different thing
1: you go that i think you know what i think people can handle (laughs) us talking for over an hour
0: about a cannibal
1: film (laughs) and only lightly touching on the one scene of cannibalism in it because you know what we're gonna be talking about all these different cannibal movies and some of them are gonna be more centric to the theme of cannibalism than others
0: yeah and i think like we just talked about alive which has like I don't know, 60 seconds of cannibalism in it. And almost all we talked about was cannibalism.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: Um, I think we should discuss our favorite like scene or two kind of just out outside of the plot and the complex kind of plays of justices and injustice and violence, just like a moment or the way something is shot or played that we think is really good.
1: Yeah. Okay. So like, what's my favorite scene?
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, It's got to be either Aaron and Tamara in the woods, just because you get, again, those really kinetic performances and the chemistry between the two of them. And I love the way their movements are shot like a dance. Like, it's not just like this erotic love scene. It's like they're also kind of jockeying for position. Um. It's-
0: Beautiful and it's passionate in just the way their bodies are are moving with one another.
1: Yeah, the physicality of it, and um, just and I was saying this about like the, the beauty of it being someone with Tamar's eye and and making choices you wouldn't normally see. I suspect you don't see a lot of like versions of this staged where Jessica Lang, who was fifty when the film came out. Is still very much like this real source of like sexual power and sexual domination in it. It's like a very anti-ageist uh depiction of of her as a woman in power. Uh and then kind of the counterpoint to that scene that I love is when towards the end Aaron is uh brought he goes towards the Goths thinking that they'll take care of his son and shelter him and instead he's arrested not knowing that Lucius has now assumed uh, assumed rule of the Goths and the Goth army has now become his army to combat Rome with and uh, a long story short Aaron essentially stands his ground against uh, Lucius and the Goth army and refuses to make apologies for anything he's done and in, in fact says he wishes he could have could have done more, and it's just like a very powerful performance from Harry Lennox, and uh, and it feels like a, the real spotlight on on Aaron, who's such a complicated character, and gives him a long moment in the sun to to kind of speak speak his his truth to the power of his uh, oppressors,
0: and and un- unapologetically,
1: completely unapologetically anti-apologetically. He's like, not only do I refuse to apologize for, anti- yeah. the, for the bad things I did, I wish I did more.
0: He says if there's one good thing I've done, I apologize for it. Yes, like, he,
1: he apologizes me. for the good... There you go. He apologizes for the good things. The yeah. good things. Because in a black and white world, then, you know, it's like, good must the good to them must be bad to him and vice versa.
0: Yeah, I think mine is... Um, it's, it's awful to see, but it's so powerfully done, the kind of first scene when we see uh, Lavinia with her tree branch hands and she can't speak and she's standing on a tree stump and has no shoes and her dress is torn and she doesn't know where to go or what to do or how to move. It's just clearly in shock. And I think part of what, um, about it that is so powerful is that it's not. This is one of the ways that this is different from a contemporary slasher film. This staging of it is different from a slasher film, very different. Is that um, in a slasher film, violence like this, of this kind, would be used as an excuse to gawk at a body and to gawk at a woman's body, especially and to turn the body into an object and to. And kind of ruthlessly look at a body in a dehumanized way and in that scene we, I think it's, it's at least for me, I'm like, oh, you, we have such deep empathy for her and all I could think of is not just to look at the body as an object but to really think about the violent act, right? Like it's really shedding light on like how could someone do these specific violent things without turning the body into a spectacle. It's instead part of her trauma and and part of her character in a really
1: complicated way that's really interesting because that we see like all the violence towards her leading up to being taken into the woods Mm -hmm. there's something in that ellipsis and then seeing her afterwards where it's almost like it would be it would be so yeah gratuitous and, and obscene to actually see what they do to her and then seeing the after effects and just being left to your imagination it just allows you to empathize so much more with her as a character and not just, like, the constituent parts of her mutilated body.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So, I was really nervous, because I don't know a lot about Shakespeare, and I had never seen this, and I wasn't sure we'd have... I was like, I don't know if I'll have anything to say, and
1: I think we... I am... We can cut me saying this if we want, or we can leave it in. I'm, I'm hoping we do justice to how complicated the portrayal of races in the film because it is it's a very delicate subject and the film is walking a very fine line and i i feel walking like we're walking a fine line when we discuss it and maybe we do it justice and maybe we don't
0: yeah i think i think it could have been worse and i think that not just it could have been worse as in like this is like is that, that's a really low bar it's a notch
1: above the bottom of the pit yeah but
0: i think for it to have been better like a, a quote-unquote better portrayal of race where there was no complexity and no um no indication of the racism in the text would have been a denial of the racism in the original text
1: yeah i mean there's a lot of controversy about modern depictions of uh uh, the Tempest, for instance, where the character of Caliban is is just treated unquestionably as if he was meant to uh, symbolize like a, the colonial subject. And the more you read the original play, the more it can kind of be like, that's a much neater, tidier version of it. But it kind of, I don't know if it's in the text or not. Like, this feels more like one where there's enough in the text that you can extract something really worthwhile from it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thank you for discussing this really complicated
1: film with me. Thank you for watching this two hour and forty six minute film with me and then talking about it.
0: Yeah, it's a it's totally worth the time commitment.
1: And it's on YouTube for free and pretty good quality.
0: It is on YouTube for free and pretty good quality. Yeah, um, join us next week for a huge pivot of vastly different, uh, different film. We'll be discussing Jennifer's Body.
1: Vascularly different film. <laughs>
0: all right thank you for sticking around for this long for our conversation and see you next time stay punny good night